Well, it is good to be back again with you guys this morning. And this is the first time or our first time in a little while. Back in uh, August, we started a new series on the life of Jesus Christ from eternity past all the way to eternity still future. We're continuing in that uh, this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 once again. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. Um, I'm going to be uh, talking a little bit about worry and anxiety this morning. And so uh, I've actually titled this message after a popular hit song in 1988 by a guy named Bobby McFerrin. Uh, anybody know which song I'm talking about there? Don't, Don't yeah, you guys know it. I love it. Uh, yeah, you, you either had the shirt, you listened to the song a million times. If you don't remember it, uh, Evelyn, would you refresh our, refresh our memory, memory real quick? Um, you remember all how this goes, right? Like, this is like the most catchy song that you can possibly have in the entire world. So, I'd want to sing a note for note. Come on, in Jamaican accents, please. Be happy. <laughs> Every life we have some trouble. When you worry, you make it double. Don't worry. <laughs> be happy. Don't worry, baby. Don't worry. Be happy. Now. My favorite part right there. Okay, we're done with that. I think we get the point. So I've been jamming out to that song literally all week long, reading through this passage. I was like, yes, he was on to something that is a blessed and anointed song. But uh, I think we get it, right? You had the T-shirt probably in the late 80s or early 90s the little big yellow face and stuff, and it said, don't worry, be happy, and everything. But uh, it's one of these messages we hold on to. We, we cling to it a lot. We, it was uh, the first and only a cappella hit to be number one on the Billboard 100, uh, probably because we've all had to battle with worry, fear, and anxiety at some point in time. Uh, I'll never forget a number of years ago, uh, one of my buddies who's also a pastor in town, he posted this question on Facebook, asked people to write in about what things bring them the most worry. And I thought that personally that the, the, the responses were just fascinating. A number of people wrote in there kind of joking about it a little bit. And one person wrote in and said, the, um, Tony Romo in the fourth quarter, down by six. Right? And I was like, okay, that's not right at all because uh, his fourth quarter percentages were pretty incredible. But anyway, uh, other people wrote in about getting, they said, uh, getting on Facebook, Facebook during political season. During election season, right, does that bring anybody else anxiety and fear? And kind of you're like, okay, now I thought we were friends, not anymore. Um, that was another one. Uh, one. One guy in my singles ministry wrote in, he said, uh, picking out my clothes when I go on a date. Right? I don't know, ladies, I don't know if you know this, but like with guys like evidently back in the day, that was a thing that just brought us a ton of fear and worry was trying to figure out what we're supposed to wear that day. We never really got it right. But uh, some people were joking around. And of course, a lot of them were very, very serious responses. And probably the, the, the number one thing that people worried about was some sort of failure in their life, uh, failure as a parent or failure and your job and just not being very good at the thing that you're called to do, a failure as a spouse or something like that. Other people wrote in and they said uh, money or the future. That was a huge thing that they're concerned about that's bringing them a lot of fear and worry. Like how are the bills going to be paid and am I ever going to be able to retire? Am I going to have enough for when I'm not able to physically work anymore or anything like that? But money and finances was a huge one. I've lost my job and oh my gosh, what's going to happen? Are we going to go homeless or something like that? Um, other people wrote about the fear of being alone. Uh, or finding a spouse. Am I ever going to get married? Some people were asking. I've been divorced, and am I going to be alone the rest of my life? I've been widowed. What's going to happen? Am I going to be able to do this thing by myself uh, for the rest of my days? Uh, other people wrote in about the fear and, and worry about um, being able to start a family. Are we going to be able to do this? We've been battling with this for a long time, and the answer has been no for the, so many, many years. Other people wrote about the fear and worry about their kids and their kids' future. They've got a prodigal child, someone who's run away from the faith, run away from home and things of that nature, and they're very, very uh, fearful about what's going to happen with their children and the people that they love. Uh, some people wrote about 
uh, being accepted by people that I care about, and I'm very worried that I'll never actually be enough for the people that I love and want to be enough for. Uh, other people wrote in and said, I, I'm fearful about Christmas, right? Uh, Christmas is just that season where we're reminded of our pain, we're reminded of things that have happened the past year, we're reminded of the people that aren't around our dinner table uh, this year. I'm fearful about all the dysfunctional family things that are going to be coming in and trying to eat dinner at the same time together, and I'm fearful about the expectations that they're going to have for me because I'm never enough for my in-laws and things of that nature. Other people came in and, and they said, you know, I'm fearful about going to the doctor. Every time we go to the doctor, it's another major uh, diagnosis that's coming back, and I can't take another one coming in. Point of the matter is, church, like there's a million different things in the world that go on every single day that we can be worrying about. And so the question I want to look at this morning is like, what do we hold on to in the middle of so much fear and in the middle of so much worry? And when we're talking about this worry, we're not talking about what we talked about a few weeks ago, this, this really, really, the kind of worry that uh, has a lot to do with your physiological orientation or some sort of a past tra traumatic experience or something like that. We're talking about like the, the, the normal day-to-day -day worry that every single one of us are confronted with on a daily basis, these things that we just talked about. Like, like what do we do with our worry? What would Jesus have us do in that moment? And I think that's what he's going to help us with in our passage in Matthew chapter 6. So again, if you have your Bibles, uh, let's go ahead and turn there. Matthew 6, we're going to pick it up in verse 24, and we're going to go to, the, uh, to verse 35 right here. Uh, if you remember from the past few weeks, Jesus is still preaching his Sermon on the Mount, right? This is a continuation of a thing we started a little while ago. He's preaching from the side of a mountain. There's a lot of different people that are there. Uh, and essentially what he's doing, it's a beautiful sermon where he's calling out uh, the relig religious hypocrites of the day. Uh, it's, uh, clearly, it's relevant today, right? Uh, he's calling out the religious hypocrisy that's going on all around him, and he's essentially saying, okay, you people over here, you, you look really, really religious. You feel like you are a righteous person, but you don't even know what righteousness is. True righteousness is about more than, than, than just the things that you do. It's about more than what's going on on the outside. True righteousness, as I define righteousness, and as the fathers define righteousness, is about what's going on deep inside your heart. It's about why you do the things that you do. It's about uh, the way that you do the certain things that you do. It's not just about the fact that you're doing certain things, you're saying right things, you're showing up at church and things of that nature. Like true righteousness, as I define it, is about so much more than just those things over there. And so when we get to chapter 6, like he's doing the exact same thing. That sermon and this message is continuing in here. However, midway through, he's going to start turning the corner a little bit and, and speaking a little about a lot of more kind of very practical kinds of things, and worry being one of them. He's just done the Lord's Prayer, taught us how to pray, and now in light of that, how to deal with our worry and things like that. So pick it up with me in verse 24. I want you to see the whole passage of what we're going to be talking about here. Here's how he picks it up, and he says, No one can serve two masters. Either you're going to hate the one and you're going to love the other, or you're going to be devoted to the one and you're going to despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. They're competing, they're warring with each other. This is the passage where he talks about don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where, wrath, where, where moth and rust can destroy. Store up for yourself treasures in heaven. That's what he's talking about. And so in verse 25 he says, therefore, in light of this teaching right here, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat or drink or about your body or what you're going to wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about your clothes? Right? Like why do you worry about your clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of those. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? 
So don't worry saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? Or what are we going to wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But here it is. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things are going to be added unto you. And I love the way that he ends this whole thing. He wraps it up by saying this. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will have enough worry about itself. Each day is enough trouble of its own. <laughs> Does that freak anybody else out? Anybody else kind of going, okay, well, uh, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow's bad enough. Um, okay, but tomorrow's going to soon be today. So <laughs> kind of worry, freaking out about that, right? I, it, it's kind of a, a weird thing. But there's a couple things that, that I love that he addresses immediately for us here in this passage. Like, number one, like, he's not saying that your problems aren't real. Right? He's not saying that these concerns, that they're not legitimate concerns. And he's not saying that you don't need to pay attention, uh, pay attention to them or, or address them or anything like that. He's not minimizing those things. That's not what worry is. Worry, as Webster defines it, is this. It's a state of anxiety or unease where one's mind is continuously overcome with fear about real or perceived troubles. Okay, that's what worry is. It's not, it's not just, hey, acknowledging that there's a problem over here. It's a leg it takes this legitimate concern and it dwells on the problem from a place of fear. And so it's very, very different than, than acknowledging legitimate concerns. And so he's not saying don't do that. All he's saying is that there's a way to look around and there's a way to deal with the troubles of life, the very legitimate concerns that are in front of you. There's a way to deal with those things that does not leave you crippled in fear and in worry and in anxiety. It's not helpful. You practical people here that are all about efficiency and success and things like that, okay, it doesn't do that. It's not helpful. Verse 27, he's going to say, can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And of course, the answer is no, right? Like, can, can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? There's a pastor, uh, uh, I heard a pastor one time say it like this. He says, worrying is kind of like paying interest on a debt that you may not even owe. Right, that's what worrying is. It's like paying interest on a debt that you may not even owe. So think about it. It's kind of like when we worry about different things, we go to worst case scenarios all the time. When we play those out in our mind, we go to a million different places that we probably, uh, pro we probably will not actually go to those things in real life. But we always go to these worst case scenarios here. Like that's what, he, that's what he's saying. And so, no, 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 it does not actually add anything to your life when we entertain worry. Uh, in fact, according to an article by WebMD.com, I was reading this past week, uh, it may actually do the opposite. Okay, so this article was just talking about how worry is not only uh, problematic and not only does it hurt the quality of your life right now, but it may actually hurt the longevity of your life in the long run. So one other thing to worry about, right? <laughs> so, but, it, but the article is fascinating. It talked about how about 75% of all doctor visits are stress and anxiety related. Right? 75% of all doctor visits are all stress and anxiety related. Talked about how 43% of all adults suffer adverse health effects from stress. Talked about how the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, uh, OSHA, declared stress a hazard of the workplace and that it costs American industry more than $300 billion annually. It's such a problem, right? Dr. Charles Mayo, the famous uh, Mayo Clinic, put it like this. He said, excessive worry affects the circulation of blood, the heart, the glands, and the entire nervous system. Though I've never known a man who died of overwork, I have known a lot of people who've died of worry, right? And so, and so it's a major problem, right? And so the first thing Jesus is going to say, just very, very simple for the practical people out there, look, you got to understand it's, it's not a neutral situation. It's not one of these things that's really no big deal. It's actually not helpful to anything. It's very, very harmful. Which of you, by worrying, is able to add a single hour to your life? Um, the other problem that we're going to see all throughout this thing is that not only that, it's not only just unhelpful, but it's actually flat out wrong to entertain worry. 
And this is going to be an interesting point because I don't think we typically think about our worry kind of like this, right? We, we typically think about worry as one of these things that, hey, we all do it. We all engage in it. It's no big deal. Uh, I probably shouldn't do it, but if I do, it's really not that big of a deal, right? That's, that, that's how we think about it quite a bit. Uh, it's a natural response to a very real problem. And again, it's not what Jesus is talking about here. Worry is about going into this, into this continuous place where you're dwelling upon fear on the problems that are in front of you. And so we're not talking about, again, um, just uh, acknowledging very real problems here. We're talking about not going to this place of fear. But three different times, Jesus is going to say, look, this isn't suggestive right here. He's going to command us three different times not to worry. Verse 25, he's going to say, don't worry about your life. Just don't do it. It's not a suggestion like don't worry about your life. Verse 20, uh, 31, don't worry about food or provision. Verse 34, don't worry about tomorrow because today has enough problems of its own. In other words, again, it's, it's not a suggestion. It's not a self-help kind of a thing right here. Uh, uh, Jesus, for Jesus, it's actually a matter of trusting God or continuing to walk in sin. It's that big of an issue for him. And let me ask you this, church, like, have you ever thought about worry like that before? I mean, have you ever thought about your anxiety and the ways that, that our mind just goes to places and it stays there for over and over again? Have we ever thought about it like it's that weighty of a thing for us? Like, have we ever put it in the same category as thou shalt not lie, cheat, murder, or steal? Like, we take those things seriously. We avoid them, right? We're not okay with those things. And we got to understand, like, it's not just here in this passage, but 366 other times in Scripture, we are commanded not to fear or not to continue in excessive worry. Right? There's a reason for that. It's not just wrong, but like, like there's a reason that we're not supposed to do that. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are worried about missing out on life. Like they're, they're, they're worried that, hey, we're not experiencing everything we're supposed to experience here. And so they end up eating the forbidden fruit, and everything collapses as a response to that. Like Exodus 32, the Israelites are worried about abandonment. They're not able to trust that God is going to come down from that, that mountain. And, and, and they end up building an idol of gold, a, a statue of gold, and, and, and giving into that. Right, like Numbers 13, the Israelites are worried about defeat, and so they stop trusting in the word of the Lord, and it keeps an entire generation of Israelites from inheriting the promised land. At 1 Samuel 15, Saul, King Saul is worried about his future, so he disobeys God, and he ultimately loses his kingdom. Jonah chapter 1, he's worried about engaging his enemies, and so he runs from God. He gets caught up in a storm, thrown overboard in the ship. He gets eaten by a fish, and he gets spit back out on dry land. Right, it's kind of a problem. Luke 10, Martha's worried about her chores, right, and everything that needs to get done, and so she misses out on this chance to be with Jesus. In other words, like, it's not suggestive, and it's not this neutral kind of a thing. It's one of those problems that just keeps giving birth to other problems. Like, that's what it does. It's, 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 the reason that it's such a problem is because it's one of those things that just keeps giving birth to more and more problems. I love the way John Piper explains it like this. He says, he says think about the number of sins that are connected to the sin of worry. Worry about money will cause you to hoard or steal. Worry about success will make you irritable and impatient with the people that are around you. Worry about relationships will make you withdrawn or indifferent toward other people. Worry about what other people think about you will make you lie or stretch the truth. If worry could be conquered, a mortal blow would be struck to so many other sins. Church, that's why it's a big deal. Three different times, you're commanded, don't worry. It's not just, hey, you may want to avoid this thing. Three different times, we're commanded, don't worry. And again, it's not just because it's unhelpful, and it's not just because of the problems, uh, but it's wrong because when you and I entertain our worry, uh, you stop trusting in the love of God for you, and you stop trusting in the power of God to provide for you. Like, that's what we're doing when we're entertaining worry. It's what he's saying in, in the early part of this passage. He's talking about providing food for the birds. And he says, look at the birds of the air. They're provided for. They always eat. 
Look at the flowers of this field. They're ordained with beauty over here. Like, look at these different things. And he wraps it up this question. He says, are you not more valuable than they? In other words, church, like, don't you know that I love you? In other words, don't you know that I'm not distant and I'm not out there and I'm not cold and I'm not calloused to the very real problems that are going on in your life, to your pain and to your sadness, to the difficulty, like to the uncertainty of your future. I'm not far away in those things. I know these things. Like, are you not more worthy, uh, worth more to me than they are? Church, isn't that exactly what the lie of anxiety always tells us? Like, doesn't it always say that, that you're the only person in the world who's going to be concerned about these things that are right in front of your face and that you're the only one that can do anything about it? Like, isn't that what it's always whispering? Like, you're the only one that can see this problem here and you're the only one that can do about it, do anything about it. Like, you're the only one who cares about this loss of your job or about the decline in your paycheck or about your wandering children or about the fact that you can't have children right now or about the fact that you're single and want to be married, or about the fact that you're married and want to be single, right? Or you're the only one that sees these things and cares about these things and that has the power and ability to do do any of these things. Like, I love the way that Peter instructs us here. He says this in 1 Peter 5, 7. He's going to very simply say, cast all of your anxiety upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. Like, just cast it on him because he cares for you. And it's a beautiful image here because he's just simply saying, like he's inviting you to take all of your worries and all of your anxieties and literally hurl it upon him because he cares and he's not distant and he's not far away and he's not numb to the things that we're going through. And he's saying, I want them on my shoulders. Don't leave them on your shoulders anymore. And it's this beautiful picture that he gives us of kind of like casting a net into the ocean in order to go fishing. Right, that's what he's saying, like do that with your worries and anxieties, like literally picture that, wrap them all up in this net and say, here's these different things, here's everything that I'm dealing with, here's all the worst case scenarios that I'm playing out in my mind, wrap them all up in that net, cast them into the ocean, cast them upon me, why? Because I care about you and I love you. Isaiah's going to liken it to a nursing mother and he's going to say, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she was born? Like does that ever happen you ever forget about your child there? Sometimes we fall asleep, right? Like, that's what the first service is telling me. I, I, sometimes you fall asleep, and he even acknowledges that. He's like, okay, well, though she may forget sometimes, I'll never forget you, Jesus said, God says. Like, I'm never going to forget you, kind of like a nursing mom. Like, I don't forget about the child that I love. I'm never going to forget you. And Jesus, Paul's going to say it in Romans 8, 32. He's going to say, he who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? In other words, he's making this argument from the greater to the lesser, and he's simply saying, okay, if God in his infinite love sent his one and only son to come suffer, to live, suffer, die for you, then will he not also then provide for you too from the greater to the lesser? If he did all of this for you, don't you think he can provide for you too? I mean, it's kind of like a few years back we took Kaylee about to Disney World. At the end of the Disney day, if you've ever taken your little ones with you, he was way too young for Disney at the time. Anyway, we were out there. It was late in the day. He's complaining and he's whining. We're all hot and tired. It's July at Disney, which is a big problem, number one. Uh, But we get to the end of the day and he's like, Daddy, I'm starving to death. I'm so hungry. Are we ever going to eat? Am I just going to starve to death? And he's just, you know, like whining and complaining. And I want to be like, Caleb, you think I brought you out to Disney World just to starve you to death? I mean, you really think I paid all this money and we're, we're, like, we're like in line to see Daffy Duck, Donald Duck, and Mickey, like all these things. You think I'm like willingly listening to It's a Small World after all, like 8,000 times in my head, simply to see you die of starvation, right? I, 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 if I'm willing to do all of that for you, like clearly I love you. Clearly you can believe that I love you and I have the capacity to actually feed you too. And it's exactly what Paul's saying here. Uh, I love the way Tony Evans puts it. He says, anxiety for the Christian is completely irrational. 
It means that you believe that God can take us to heaven, but he cannot handle you on earth. That God is good for eternity, but insufficient for time. That he delivered us from damnation, but won't do the details of our day-to-day lives. Church, it's irrational. Like, it, it, it's flat out wrong, God says. Jesus says three times, I, I just don't do it, don't worry. Like, it's not a suggestion. It's not one of these things, hey, you probably shouldn't, but, you know, you do. It's no big deal. It's flat out wrong to continue to do that. It's irrational, is what he says. And again, it's, it, it's, it's not just because of the problems, and, and it's not just because it's unhelpful, and it's not just because of these things. But, like, bottom line of this entire thing is, the reason that it's a major problem is because it reveals where your heart really is. Again, this is the entire theme in this whole passage, this, this Sermon on the Mount. Like, you religious people that are out there, like, where is your heart? Worry has this way uh, of revealing where your heart really is because we worry about the things that we care about. Like, that's what worry does. It thinks much about your problems. It thinks much about a million other things. And it thinks little of the power and love of God for you. That's what it does. And so when we worry, like, we worry about the things that we care about the most. We worry most about the things that we care, care about the most, right? And, and I think you get this, right? You, you and, you've never laid awake at night worrying about my son's grades in kindergarten. Like, you don't stay awake late at night worrying, oh, my gosh, did Caleb get green or yellow or red or orange today in his behavior chart at kindergarten, right? Like, oh, what's going to happen to his future, right? That's just not the thing that keeps you awake at night. Uh, but the thing that keeps you awake at night are your own kids or your own loved ones or your own financial future or your own job or your own report that you were supposed to do or your own school or your own things of that nature. Like we care about the things, uh, we, we, we worry about the things that we care about. We worry most about the things that we care about the most. It's exactly why Jesus starts this whole passage in verse 24 and he says, he says, no one can serve two masters. Either you're going to hate one and love the other, or you're going to be devoted to one, and you're going to despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Church, like, that's what Jesus wants to know in this passage. Like, where's your heart? Like, what are you really all about? Like, what are the things that are most valuable? What are you living your life for? Are you really all about me, or are you really all about the money? Are you really all about me, or are you really all about perfect comfort, and more luxury, and better health? and status and companionship or having the perfect family or a million other good things. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, don't worry about these things, he says. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Church, like that's the question that's on the table in this passage, right? Like what's your life really all about? Like what's the things that wells up in your heart? Like what are the things that bring you worry right here? What do they reveal about what's really going on inside? Like when you're praying about your problems, like do you pray things like my kingdom come, my will be done no matter what? Like when you, when you, when you lay down and you say here's all the different things that are going on and, and you bring them before the Lord, is it all about God I need this, I need this job over here and I need this spouse over here and I need this spouse to think this way all the time and to do these things over here and I need these kids, this number of kids, I need them to have this personality and these kinds of interests and to win prom king and prom queen and I need them to go to Harvard so they can support me in my, in my old age and I need this standard of living over here. Father, it's my kingdom come, my will be done. Or are you actually able to look at the different things that are all around you and go before him in prayer and say, Father, it's not my will, but your will be done. It is all about your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, like, like, I'm devastated by the loss of this job right now. And I have no idea what it's going to look like in the future. But at the end of the day, Father, I trust you with it. I trust you with it. Because I know that you love me. And you've proven that you're a God who provides. 
At the end of the day, Father, like I have no idea what next month is going to hold, but at the end of the day, I'm handing it to you, and I trust you with whatever is coming our way. It's not my kingdom come, my will be done, but your kingdom come, and your will be done, whatever that may look like. I mean, I mean Paul's going to say in Philippians 4, he's going to say, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, just present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus our Lord. Tuesday this past week, Joyce Sherrod always sits here on the second row in the first service, calls me up out of the blue. She has no idea what I'm preaching about. And she goes, Pastor, Pastor, uh, I need to tell you what's going on. Joyce has battled with crippling anxiety for most of her life. Um, she's in an assisted care facility right now and was actually here this morning. Awesome to see her. Um, but she calls me on Tuesday, has no idea what I'm preaching about, and she's just saying, like, you know, like, all my anxiety is welling up, and this is happening, and this is happening. My sister came in, and is causing this drama, and this, that, and the other, and, and she's like, I was overcome, and my heart was racing a thousand miles per hour, and, and all of a sudden, I just got down, and, and, and I started praying, and I just started saying, God, get, take it away from me. Just, just take it away from me. Take away my worry. Take away my anxiety. God, I need your peace. And she just said, I just kept pressing into him, and pressing into him, and pressing into him, and Aaron, you got to know, like, he took away my anxiety. Like, he took away my anxiety. Like, Aaron, like, I, I'm experiencing peace. Like, I haven't experienced peace in a really, really long time. And she goes, I just want you to know, like, like God takes away people's anxiety. And I go, Joyce, you know what I'm preaching on this week? Like, exactly that. Exactly that. That in the middle of that place, like, he invites us to, 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 to not be anxious or worried about anything, but in everything. With prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, already believing that God is going to provide knowing that he's going to come through and whatever it is that you actually need, not what you think you need, but what you actually need, in the middle of that place, he's able to provide a peace which surpasses all understanding. In other words, he's able to give you a peace when your circumstances dictate no understanding. When they simply say, I've got no idea how things are going to work out. I have no idea how anything's going to play out. He's able to provide this peace and this thing inside of you which is able to be sustained in the middle of the most crazy circumstances. Church, are you able to pray like that in, the time, in your time of need? Father, it's not my kingdom come and it's not my will be done that I'm asking for, but it's, but it's your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, the health of my parents, like it's declining rapidly. And Father, I'm praying in Jesus' name that you would bring your healing to my parents right now. God, would you bring them peace? But in the event that the answer is no and that their time has come, God, it's not my kingdom come, my will be done, but your kingdom come, your will be done. Father, would you prepare me with the peace to be able to get through whatever is coming our way? Whatever that thing may be, my kid's future, Father, not my will, not how I've played it out in my head, not this, that, and the other that's all about lifting up my name and showing people what an incredible parent I am, but but it's your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, at the end of the day, I trust you with everything that's going on. Church, the problem with worry is that it's typically about my kingdom coming and my will being done. And it's very, very rarely about God, it's all about you. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's why verse 33, the key verse in this entire text, seek first, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things that are going to be given unto you. In other words, number one, the thing that you need to be focused on, the thing that you need to be consumed about is not the circumstances that are in front of your face, but the thing that you need to be consumed about is his kingdom first. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all of these other things that are going to be added don't matter at all. It's just that what he's saying here is that the things will come when he's number one. Like, that's what he's essentially saying here. Like, the things, his provision, like, that's going to come when you're seeking his kingdom first. I'll never forget uh, the time that I had to learn this firsthand. 
and it's stuck with me ever since. But I've shared with you bits and pieces of the story in the past, but it happened my, right after my senior year in high school when, uh, when I got my rejection letter to Texas A&M the very first time. Uh, you, many of you know this, I had to go to community college the first year, and then I got to Texas A&M. And, but it was one of those years, I was wrapping up my senior year in high school, A&M was the only place I needed to go, wanted to go. Uh, clearly, God's anointing is on that place. And so, um, you know, that was the only thing that I wanted to do. And uh, the grades were there, the activities were there, the recommendations were there. I wasn't worried about it at all, and um, I took it for granted. I didn't apply any other places. So I did early, uh, I did early, my early applications in. I got them all sent in, and, and uh, somewhere around like September, October, they sent it back to me, and they said, hey, you're missing a little signature here. I was like, oh, man, okay. So I, I did that, and I turned it back in. The post office lost it. Somewhere around November, December, it came back to me again, and, and I was like, okay. I tried to resend it again, and there was a missing Something else was missing on it. I get it back in January, February, and you need to redo this, and you need to re- redo that. And I'm like, oh, gosh, okay. So I redo it again, and four times my application was sent back to me in that one year. I remember sitting there at the end of May, and all year long, my senior year, I've been talking with my best friends and my family. We've been making plans for College Station and where we were going to live and who I was going to live with and what it's all going to look like. My mind was there in College Station as I was wrapping up senior year. And I remember sitting in my living room, getting that final letter back from Texas A&M, and they essentially said, hey, good news, you're accepted to Texas A&M next year, not this year. You've missed the deadlines, um, essentially go to community college or something like that, and you'll be fine for next year. You've missed the deadlines and that kind of, this, this, that, and the other. And I remember getting that letter and kind of, I was just, I was just irate, I was furious. And I remember getting that thing and I stormed into my room like a mature 17-year-old man and um, just getting just angry, throwing things around, and just screaming and yelling. Like, literally, like, the thing that I worried and cared about most at that time was crushing at that time. And I remember for about 25, 30 minutes or something like that, it just kind of wallowed in pity and just angry and things of that nature. And finally, I started to slow down and say, okay, Lord, what, what are you doing in this whole thing? And I grabbed this stack of note cards, these flashcards, and I was, these Bible verses I was memorizing, and like, I remember taking one of them out, Psalm 46, 10, be still and know that I am God. I remember taking that card and just reflecting on it, be still and know that I'm God. I'm like, Lord, I don't want to be still right now. Like, I don't want to be still right now, and you're not doing me a whole lot of good that you're God right now. I remember just sitting on that verse and reading about other things, uh, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Okay, okay. Could do that and started just memorizing, just going through some of these scriptures. And finally, my parents came in and they sat with me in the middle in that room and and uh, they prayed with me and they just simply helped me pray out loud. Father, we're just I don't know what in the world you're doing with this whole thing, but whatever it is, I'm in. Whatever it is, I'm in. Uh, I, I trust you in the middle of this thing. It's one of the harder prayers I've had to pray because I didn't fully really trust him at that time. I don't think. A little bit later, at the end of May. Uh, one of my mom's distant friends from Colorado Springs, Colorado, came in town, and, and she came over to our house. I'd never met her before, but she goes, hey, uh, I want to meet with you and Aaron. And so I came into the room, and she's like, hey, I'm so-and-so. I had this dream, and I feel like you're supposed to go to Summit Ministries in Manitou Springs, Colorado. And I was like, what? Crazy lady, what are you talking about? And, um, and I was like, okay. And she wanted to pay. Summit Ministries is this uh, it's kind of a, a leader development two-week uh, two week prep thing, essentially for graduating high schoolers in order to be prepared to go into college and to be able to deal with the antagonism they're going to get from a lot of um, the college world, professors and things of that nature. 
And so it's a lot of apologetics and understanding the issues and being able to reason about things like that. And I had no idea what any of it was. Crazy lady comes in and says, I had a dream that I wanted to send and I wanted to pay for you to go. And I was like, all right, two weeks in Manitou Springs, Colorado, I'm in. And so I go to the Summit Ministries, and it's, it's the entire thing is that if you've ever seen the movie God's Not Dead, um, like that was the story of that whole year essentially for me. I think they, ripped, I think they owe me some royalties. But uh, like we went there and, and just got like, filled on all this stuff. And so I come back in midsummer, and, um, and I'm thinking about things. I'm going, okay, Lord, like I still don't have a school. What's going what's gonna to happen here? And so I roll at Tomball Community College there, and, and I, I go to Tomball Community College. And first day of class, I sign up for a philosophy class. And there's Dr. Norwood, this mid-70-year-old man who used to be a Baptist and denied it, walked away from the faith. And now he's this angry atheist person who, whose sole goal was to get you to question and walk away from your faith. And he told me that in private conversations later on. And, uh, but I encountered him on day one. I remember sitting there in the classroom, and he's just speaking out. Uh, the, the things he was saying were just absolutely horrific. It was, I thought they were exaggerating it at Summit Ministries, and it was exactly that on day one. And I remember having a chance to stand up and kind of just and provide some counters. Here's some Christian worldview over here that you're not thinking about. And, and we developed a great relationship immediately early on. We had a friendship outside of class, and in the middle of class, in the middle of all this banter and stuff, he welcomed the class to talk about things, and I was bringing the Christian worldview and the reasonability of the faith to this conversation, and he's bringing the antagonism and the questions and this, that, and the other. But we had this respectful relationship going on, and it had all, these, uh, had all this influence with the other students that were in the class. And that whole semester, like, I had so many times to be able to meet with students outside of class, pray with them, talk with them about their questions about the faith. And very early on, I was able to see, okay, Lord, you know what you're doing in having me stay here at Tomball Community College this past year. And I remember going to the youth pastor and my parents and saying, okay, this is about Dr. Norwood. There's something going on here. And we started praying for him all year long. God, would you bring him salvation? Would you use me to bring the gospel and to bring him back to you, whatever that may look like? And we started praying for that, and we started having opportunity after opportunity. We get to Christmas, and it's time for the new semester to start up, so I signed up for two more of his classes. Whatever he was taking, whatever he was teaching, I signed up for him. Ethics and logic, right? And uh, I actually love the classes. The ethics class is all about, like, debating and bringing up uh, cultural ethics and things of that nature and talking about them from a secular worldview and a biblical worldview. And so we get in this class, and, and I'll never forget, very early on, uh, he, he begins the class, and uh, he goes, okay, I'm going to start the class a little bit different today. Uh, he goes, Aaron, I want you to stand up real quick. I'm going to give you five minutes, and I want you to explain to everybody what Christianity is all about. Like, why are you a Christian, and why, should, why do you think that other people should be too? And I was like, what? Are you, okay. I Just on the spot, boom, get up there and go. And I was like, okay, I gave probably the weakest gospel presentation I've ever given in my life. But as, as, a, as a freshman in college, I had a chance to stand in front of an entire class, 40 people sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We prayed with people afterwards. We started engaging in all these different things. And the conversations and the debates continue to go on throughout the semester. The end of the semester comes, three weeks left in class. And he walks in one day and he goes straight to the chalkboard. And he writes on that chalkboard, he says, today's going to be my last day in class. I have cancer. And so I won't see you again. He puts down the piece of chalk and he walks out the back of the door. And I sat there and I was just like, Lord, this isn't, this isn't fitting what I, I thought this year was supposed to be about. And he just left. He walked out, got in his car and just left. I never saw him again. And I remember kind of just wrestling with this with my, my, my parents and, and youth pastors. And I was like, what in the world is this about? And I started writing on these letters. And I started sending them these books and these pamphlets and all these different kinds of things. And, and I started just praying for him. I was like, Lord, get his attention, get his attention, get his attention. And I never heard from him again. 
the semester wraps up, and I go back to Summit Ministries once again because it was such a powerful time for me personally. And I look back, and I'm like, there are some things that I wasn't all about, but it, it prepared for me for what was taking place that year. And I go back there, and on the last day of Summit Ministries, I get this letter uh, from somebody letting me know that Dr. Norwood had passed away. And I remember getting that letter and, and sitting there at Summit Ministries, and I was just torn apart. I was just torn apart. I was like, Lord, this is not how this story is supposed to end. Like, I, I, what was this whole thing about? And I was torn apart. I shared the testimony with some, and I come back, and I started this youth ministry thing outside of a, outside of a home and started preaching a lot during that, that year, too. And I was supposed to preach the next night. I didn't know what I was going to preach on at all. And came back about 1130 at night, and I see this letter on my kitchen table. And I go in, and I open it up. It's from Dr. Norwood's ex-wife, uh, now widow, of course. And she goes, hey, I'm so-and-so, I'm Dr. Warner's ex-wife, and you don't know me at all, but I just thought you'd want to know that he's been receiving all of your letters. He's been receiving all your books from the Bible and the different tracts and this, that, and the other, and, and he's loved every bit of it. And he wants you to know that he talked about your conversations all the time um, the past year. I thought you'd want to know um, that he's passed away now, but in his last moments, the last things that he said was, Oh my gosh, look at how beautiful it all is. And she goes, I just thought that you'd probably want to know that he's okay and that he's received what you were talking about and he's in a really, really good place right now. And I remember reading that letter and going, Lord, I, you didn't have to give that to me. Like, you did not have to give me that. And I remember taking that letter and the parents were asleep. It was like 11.30 midnight, something like that. And I bust in there and I share the letter with them. And everybody. I was like, wow, you won't believe this. Like, look what happened. I was like, something happened. I don't know exactly how it happened, but I believe that God was in this and he was saved and all these kinds of things. And, and we just started celebrating and rejoicing and things like that. And, and I started just thinking back on the entire year, how the whole thing began in this place, this dark, dark place. Lord, like my world is upside down. None of what I expected was playing out. None of what I'd hoped for was playing out. God, are you even trustworthy? Do you even see me in my pain? Do you even see these plans that are being crumbling right in front of me? Like, Lord, are you even trustworthy, church? And what I'm here to say is like, he's trustworthy. Like he knows what he's doing when you have no idea what he's doing. I look back at that year and like that was the year the entire trajectory of my life changed. Like that was the year I started serving in the youth ministry and I started to develop this idea that, hey, I love teaching God's word and preaching and, and I developed this passion for the church that had always been there, but it, it really erupted that year and I started sensing, hey, God's gonna be leading me in some church ministry and vocational ministry and this, that, and the other. Literally, my entire year changed. My whole life was changed uh, in what God wanted to do that year, church. And what I'm saying is that he's faithful in the middle of that thing. When you can't see it and you have no idea how the whole thing's going to play out. Like he knows what he's doing. He loves you. He's not a distant God who's unconcerned with the difficulties that are right in front of your face. He's not powerless to do anything about them. He is a God who sees and he's a God who provides. And he says, if you'll just seek me first and seek my kingdom and my righteousness, then all the other things they are going to be taken care of. Like I'm a trustworthy God, I'll take care of you. And it may not play out exactly as you would have articulated that, how you would have wanted, but I'm a trustworthy God, and you can trust me with this thing. And church, some of you need to hear that because like you're in the middle of this transition, and you're staring at the darkness going, God, what in the world is up with this? And he's saying, just trust me, seek me first, seek my kingdom, seek my righteousness, number one, and I'll take care of you. The things will come when he's number one, church. Like some of us are worried about, about sickness and death. And, and like I love how Paul's going to say it. He's going to say, I get it. I've been there and I've done that. Like three times, five times I received from the Jews, 40 lashes minus one. In other words, he was tortured for his faith. 
right? Three times I was beaten with rods, I was pelted with stones, shipwrecked at night and day in the open sea, right? Danger from Jews and Gentiles, danger in the city and in the country, danger at sea. I've known hunger, I've known thirst, I've gone without food. But here it is in Romans 8.18, he's going to say, in light of everything that I've experienced, like I still consider the sufferings of this present time, like they're not worthy to be compared to the joy which is still to come. They're not worthy to be compared to the glory that's still to come. In other words, he is so fixated upon eternity. And he is so fixated upon the kingdom of God and his righteousness and pursuing him first. That that his fixation upon eternity has a way of dissipating these very, very real problems that are in front of his face. They're able to take these real sicknesses and this real pain and be able to just say, you know what? I'm I'm able to deal with it. It's the peace which surpasses all understanding. It's being able to deal with these things when no one else is able to deal with it because he's so fixated on eternity. Church, can you imagine what it would be like if you weren't afraid and worried about sickness, sin, and death? Can you imagine what that would be like if that were not the thing that kept you awake at night? That you were one of those people that were looking at the end and you're going, Lord, I'm ready. I'm I'm so ready to be in your presence and to behold your beauty. That everything that I'm going, like I'm able to go through what I'm going through right now. With this peace, which surpasses all understanding. I'll never forget one of my heroes in the faith, a lady named Betty Snell. I've told you about her a number of times. She's probably 90 years old now. Uh, back when we had this conversation, it was in her early 80s, so she's a young buck. And, um, but she was a lifelong missionary with Wycliffe. She served in Peru, the Machapinga uh, Machu people group in Peru, the small tribe completely unreached, living in the jungles, and she spent 50 years of her life with her husband in those jungles, helping them create a written uh, and oral language that they would be able to be able to uh, translate the scriptures into their written language. And so she spent 50 years doing that. She came back when her husband passed away. We're in Dallas, and we're talking about different things, and she finally finished up this whole dictionary that she spent her entire life building for these people. And she was talking about going back to these people and and going back to Peru, this place where she's going to be sleeping on the ground as an 85-year-old woman. And she's going to be sleeping in hammocks. And she's going to be walking up and down mountains as an 85-year-old woman. She's going to be in this jungles of Peru uh, where, where there's massive malaria outbreaks, massive sickness. There's a lot of still cannibalism in the area and things of that nature. And this 85-year-old woman is willing to go into those areas and to be able to go preach the gospel and to bring this thing to. And I asked her one day, I was like, I was like uh, uh, Betty, are you not terrified about this? Like, what's wrong with, like, are you not worried about what's going on? And I love what she said to me. She goes, Aaron, like, she, she kind of laughed a little bit. She goes, I've been ready to go for the past 50 years of my life. Like, I've been ready to go for the past 50 years of my life. The Lord will take me when he is ready for me to come home. The Lord will take me when he is ready for me to come home. Church, I'm telling you, anxiety and fear and worry, it will melt away when you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All the other things will be added unto you. And church, some of you need to hear that, like you're worried about not being enough. But when you're seeking him first, you're reminded of the gospel, which says that in Christ Jesus, even though you failed, you're still not a failure. In Christ Jesus, you are perfectly loved by God and you are worth dying for. And some of you are worried about success, but in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're, re- you're re- reminded that his only call on your life is faithfulness. It's not the fruit. It's Paul, what he says, I can plant and Apollos can water, but it's God who makes it grow. 
And church, some of you are so worried and uptight and freaking out about all kinds of other things that God has never asked you to control. He has asked you to be faithful unto him. He will take care of success. He will take care of adding or subtracting. He will take care of the fruit. And all he's called you to do is to be faithful unto him. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all the other things will be added unto you. And some of you are worried about money or the future or something like that. But the psalmist is going to say that he's the God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. In other words, he's able to speak and he's able to create the entire universe. He's able to provide a promise, you church. And beyond just the material provision, he's able to provide something so much better than material provision. You know what it is? It's contentment. It's peace. I mean, I'll never forget having to learn this myself like 10 years ago. We're going into seminary coming out of sales world, and we were doing pretty well for young 20-year-olds going into seminary, whatever that standard is, and find this place over by the seminary. It's this beautiful three-story townhome. I mean, it was awesome. And we got into it, and I signed this two-year lease so they could bring down the price, and it was still more than we could probably afford, but it was just wrong. I looked at it, and we, we signed this lease, and I'll never forget moving into this place, and we were, we were doing pretty well. We'd making more money than we ever made, and that first night we stayed in that home, I looked up at the sky, neither one of us were able to sleep that night. And we just kept looking up and, and we go, did we just make the biggest mistake we've ever made? Signed a two-year lease on this thing. A few months into it, we, that feeling was always there. And, and uh, we started praying. We're like, Lord, okay. Our finances started going down. It was all commission-based and it didn't always stay up high. Uh, lesson learned. Uh, and we started praying and, and just saying, Lord, if there's any way out of this thing, we'll take it. We'll downsize. We'll learn the lesson here. And a few months into it, the owner of the place comes to us and says, hey, we're, uh, I'm trying to sell the place. And so just want you to know we're going to sell it. And so we're like, great. And we move out then. And he goes, yeah, I'll let you guys out because I'm going to get this place ready. It's right before 2008 happens and the housing market crashes. That house was on the market for two years. Two years. And somehow we were able to break out of that, that lease. And we started downsizing. We got into a very modest, normal apartment once again. We downsized again in the year after that, and we went lower and lower there. We downsized again into a much smaller, much more humble place after that. And what I'll tell you, is, what I'll tell you there is that we were more happy and we were more content in those cruddy little places we were living in than we ever were living in the luxury of that one place we started out in. Church, is the beauty of contentment. It's the beauty of contentment. It's the beauty of peace and what happens when you're seeking him first and not the things and all the other different things. I love how Paul says it. He says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And here it is. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's what that passage is about. It's not about, hey, I can lift 500 pounds and win the Heisman like Kyler Murray or anything like that. It's not that. It's, it's, it's in sickness and in health and in, in a lot or in nothing. Like I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Church, I'm telling you, the things will come when he's number one. Just seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All the other things will be added unto you. I want to invite you to pray with me.